Hey guys, so it's been an eventful couple of weeks in the crypto land with the recent incident of Terra Luna ecosystem and all the drama followed. I'm sure you've been reading the news because everybody's talking about it. And last week I wrote this article called Five Lessons from Terra Luna Fallout for Future Stablecoin Designers, Investors and Regulators because I think there's a lot to think about for in terms of how to design a stablecoin and to make sure the longevity and the stability of it because this is really you know for better or worse stablecoin is one of the key infrastructure for the survival for the systemic liquidity of the crypto ecosystem so um fortunately even though ust was uh, you know market cap was growing very fast its usage was you know still largely contained in the anchor protocol in the terror on the terror chain so although it was starting to branch out to other chains it was not really the adoption outside the terror ecosystem was not that big or you know outside of the cosmos ecosystem i would say so um the systemic spillover quote unquote uh, it, it is not nearly as big if uh for for example, if something like USDT or USDT, you know, had a DPAC incident, that would be much much bigger impact, right? So, but I think there there are a lot of uh, lessons, there are a lot of things that we can we we can learn from from this uh, experience. And uh, for me, there are a few important things that I talked about in the article, and I got some questions from it, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. But just in terms of the bigger lessons, I think the number one lessons that we can learn from this um, event is that for a stable coin to be stable, you really need the backing token or the collateral token to have some kind of uncorrelated demand. So what do I mean by this? If you look at most of the fiat currencies in the world, okay, I know like a lot of crypto people don't, don't like fiat currencies. They like to bash fiat currencies. Um, you know, that's the, you know, community pride, right? For, for better or worse. But really, it's sometimes it's just ignoring the reality of the fact that, uh, most of fiat currencies are way more robust compared to crypto tokens. And why is that the case? The primary reason is because these tokens, these fiat tokens, they are actually used as medium exchange and a unit account in their respective economic ecosystem in the physical economy, right? So that gives a kind of, um, you know, underlying demand that is uncorrelated with any kind of speculative activities in the financial market. So um, even for a shitty currency, uh, you know, in, 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 one of those countries that has very, very mismanaged, you know, uh, uh, monetary policies such as Argentina, people still use the local currency in daily transactions. Why? Well, some of it you can, you can say it's, it's mandated by the government, right? Because the government uses its currency to pay its pu public sector vendors and employees, and it use the currency to collect tax revenues. So that is a big deal, right? So because uh, public sector's share in most economies is, uh, is, is substantial, you know, 25 to 30%, I would say. 
So it's a it's a fair share of the economy. So when this share of the economy has a stable demand for this uh, local fiat token, it's it's uh, it's much easier for the token to get adoption in the local you know economic ecosystem. So in that sense, you know that stable usage of that economic from the real economy. It kind of uh, it, it provides a stability of value for the token itself, and so that is something I would say a luxury that most of the crypto I would say none of the crypto tokens has established. Right, so even if you look at the largest the uh, the, the native tokens of the largest layer one blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Still, you know, the, the, the actual, the actual use cases that are uncorrelated un with financial speculation is extremely limited because, um, right now we have, what, what kind of on-chain activities do we have right now? We have NFT, we have DeFi, right? We have some, uh, some DAO, some, you know, social tokens, um, but those are really, really small. I, so, so you can see like, uh, most of the activities is actually tied to, uh, you know, price actions of tokens. It's tied to some sort of financial speculation, right? So, um, but, uh, you know, over time, I think you will see, um, you know, uh, more and more diversified use cases that are happening in the on-chain economy that is going to provide some kind of, uh, you know, uncorrelated underlying demand for at least you know, the larger platform tokens of blockchain platforms. But at least that's not something that we have today, right? So if you look at Luna, yes, Luna is a layer one blockchain. Yes, there are projects built on Luna. But if you look at what exactly do those projects do? Most of them is DeFi, right? And we know the largest is Anchor. And Anchor was, you know, used to be 70 to 80% of the TVL of the Luna blockchain. And the rest of it is like you have some like staking, you know, service of Luna token, which is not uncorrelated, right? And then you have some DeFi protocols, but you know, a large percentage percentage of them still, you know, build their use cases, build their applications around the usage of of um, of the stablecoin and Luna token itself. So you you see like this this type of uh, you know. Um, the uncorrelated usage is, is very, very small. So basically all the value that was accruing to the Luna token is coming from the demand of US, UST. And the demand for UST is coming from one, um, you know, very high savings rate, deposit rate that's being offered on Anchor, which was not sustainable. And secondly, we're in, you know, a market downturn and people want to, you know, park their liquidity and stable coins. So that also increases, you know, demand for stable, stable coins uh, to some extent. But so, so, so I think that is the, the crux of the issue that, you know, a lot of these, uh, uh algorithmic stable coins or semi algo stable coins need to solve is to find a use case for their tokens or find multiple use cases for their, you know, reserve currency token or backing tokens. And, uh, and the second thing I mentioned is that this concept, this uh, concept of network effect, okay, 
is a lot of times it's kind of misguided concept. I think it's actually really, you know, it's being abused a lot in the venture capital um, circles and in tech investment circles because it's kind of the, this holy grail thing and everybody wants to build. You want this project that you invest in, the company you invest in, to have the so-called network effect because that is associated with a monopoly advantage, a you know a cost, a sustainable cost advantage, and a kind of a sticky demand for your product compared to your competitors. So basically, network effect is like a a a, a very strong moat, a very strong competitive advantage that everybody every project was seeking, right? But the thing is, network effect is not equal to more users using your product. You know, so I gave the example of if you look at UST, is there any network effect there? Because a lot of people thought there was, right? So um, um, I know like many people in the in the Luna ecosystem was was saying, oh, look at uh, how many people have been using UST and there's so much adoption growth of UST. So it must have some network effect. But the truth is the only feature of a stable coin is that the only worthwhile feature is that it's worth $1, right? That is the only value proposition of this product. It's a utility product that does not have a, that does, that I, I, I would say it doesn't really have a network of its own because as long as, as soon as you lose that feature, as long as you depeg from, deviate from $1, you lose that feature. And then, you know, all the adoption that you build up is gone. It's, you know, that it's, it's, a, it's pretty much game over as, you know, as soon as you lose that peg and if you cannot get that peg back, right? No matter how big of a user base that, that you have. Um, but what, what's really needed, what, what really needs network effect is actually the underlying collateral token or the, um, you know, backing token that is supporting the value or stabilizing the value of the, of the, of the stable coin itself. In other words, in the Luna's case, in Terra Luna's case, it's the Luna token, right? But Luna token didn't, have sufficient network effect as we already talked about. And this was like, um, you know, uh, obviously, I, I, you know, I'm sure people in the Luna, you know, ecosystem, they realized this too. That's why they were offering, you know, very aggressive yield on Anchor in, you know, in hope that it will, you know, help, help uh, bootstrap adoption for the ecosystem, right? And it did help, but, I would say, you know, it's like a, you, you have to look at, uh, you know, the validity of the strategy in terms of the cost and benefit, right? Um, you, they're, they're offering, you know, such a high yield, but mostly it's driving the adoption, driving the usage of UST. But as we talked about, there's no really network effect for a stable coin per se. Um, and it was also, you know, obviously attracting builders and developers into the Terra Luna ecosystem, but that was, uh, you know, only starting to happen. It was like happening at a much slower rate compared to the growth of UST, right? So, um, 
so 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 eventually this um th this this growth pattern is is just a not you know entirely sustainable um but you know to be honest uh th this happened uh you know faster than i thought would be um i i thought uh, it, i thought the thing could keep going for a while um before something like this happened but you know it, it just shows how bad all of us are in predicting the future <laughs> so um so that's the network effect and and the fourth thing and i mentioned in the article is that um it, it really when when a protocol that that is of like a systemic importance when when a product like a stable coin which is really a key infrastructure of the crypto ecosystem right when it gets so big when it's being adopted everywhere it introduces a lot of systemic risk so if this thing collapses it will affect a lot of you know different players you throughout the ecosystem and so, you know, I think we should all be thankful that UST was actually pretty contained in the cosmos and the terror, you know, ecosystem. So this brings me to the the thought that, um, you know, instead of having some like really large cap stable coins, right now we have USDT, USDC, which are the two biggest ones, right? So, and uh, UST used to be the third largest but you see, I, I think the system, the ecosystem will be will be safer, will be more resilient as a whole if we have 10 to 20 medium sized stable coins instead of having, you know, under under five really, really large stable coins. I think that, it, you know, the former would be a more sustainable choice, more resilient choice to the ecosystem when you have these, uh, you know, a decent number of different stable coins that are that has diff that have different pegging mechanisms and that are supported by different collateral assets i think that would be a more sustainable ecosystem but of course you can argue well that runs that that runs counter to the incentives of anybody building a stable coin protocol right because when you are building um a product, any product, you want it to go big, right? Especially if you take like a venture funding, if you, you know, did an ICO or, you know, something, you definitely want one thing to grow as big as possible, right? So how do you resolve that conflict? <laughs> so, so that's why I think, you know, um, it will, it will be better if the layer one, layer two ecosystems, they themselves build their own stable coin. But those stable coins serve as a, you know, piece of infrastructure, as a semi-public good that only serves that ecosystem per se. Okay. So you don't, then you don't necessarily need those, need the market caps of those stable coins to go super big. It just needs to, you know, serve, serve the, serve the demand of, of that particular chain by in itself, right? So it, I, I see. So I think this is something that you know, um, layer one, layer two, public blockchains could you know need to think about as a public good service that they provide on chain, just like, just like you as a um, layer one, you build bridges, you build AMS, as you know, those are the basic requirements for a financial system to actually run on your chain, right? So. 
New York Chase Lanier, they're trying to do that. Um, so, you know, I haven't looked uh, too much details into how the near stablecoin is run, <laughs> but I think this uh, this is um, this is one of at least one of the motivations of why they are pushing their own stablecoins, right? So it's not necessarily that they can collect so much signing rate revenue from this stablecoin project, but it's more from the point of view that this is something that the ecosystem needs like some basic ingredient for the on-chain financial system to function. So in that sense, smaller stablecoin protocols is better than the bigger ones, right? Um, and lastly, uh, the last point I mentioned is um, regulatory standards. <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, DeFi people don't like regulations, right? So um, a, a while ago, I joked on Twitter, I was like, I said, uh, well, in bull market, people say, oh, regulations are evil because, you know, look, you have regulation, you limit people's financial freedom, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But in bear market, everybody will complain, why didn't regulators do anything, right? So, I think if we see more incidents like Luna, Terra Luna, you 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 will you will hear that sentiment more and more. It's like, why were regulators sleeping on it, right? Why do regulators allow people to lose money? Obviously, in bull market, you didn't have this problem because everybody want to take on more right more leverage. Everybody want to you know. Uh, take advantage of the bull market as much as possible. So anything that is regulatory, people think it's in your way of making money or in your way of financial independence, right? So, but these things, uh, you know, <laughs> every sentiment has its has its time and uh, things are cyclical a lot of times. So it's interesting to think about. But in terms of stable coin per se, I really think, you know, regulatory standards would be a blessing because it will really, you know, improve the confidence people have in the system. A example of this is that, you know, the re regulatory standards doesn't have to be imposed by a government or doesn't have to be mandated by any financial regulators from a nation state. It can just be a voluntary agreement that is established by the industry itself. A good example of this is the Basel Agreement in international banking, right? So the Basel Agreement has a set of rules in terms of, you know, the basic, like, uh, basic standards of, uh, um, you know, the safety measures of of, uh, of a well-run bank. Your you have you need to have a minimum capital ratio, liquidity ratio, leverage ratio, so on and so forth, right? So. In other words, you should you should be judicious about the risks that you take on, and uh, you should make sure you have enough ammunitions to prevent any you know potential bank runs and be able to pay back your depositors if a need arises. Right. So that is the motivation is really to improve the confidence in the banking system, and the Basel agreements they're not really any you know legally in. In, in, enforceable in any countries unless the countries, you know, financial regulators make it so, right? 
So it's really it's a like a voluntary international standard. If you want to, uh, uh, you know, comply to those standards, great. If you don't want to, well, that's your freedom as well. But the thing is,、uh, if you're a bank, then you comply to the standards. Or if your country's financial regulators, you comply to the standards. It's like、uh, it, it it boosts the confidence. It,、um, you know that your users have in your system, and also it boosts your reputation among your peers, among other banks that you know potentially would do business with you. So I think it's the same rationale, right? So if we have an industry standards, even if just a voluntary, for people to opt in, for projects to opt in, right? So、um, it would be an improvement. It will be an improvement to the situation right now, which is no standard, no regulation whatsoever, right? So、um, that is the article, and uh, uh, let's look at some questions. Okay, so first one from Manabash, he says, the same fate will eventually happen to USD. Luna token are synonymous to U.S. Treasuries, which. Fed manipulates to keep USD afloat. It's a multi massive, multi year super cycle that is not easy to notice. Okay, this I completely disagree, and this is something that sometimes actually annoys me to a great deal. Is the level of arrogance that and conceit. That sometimes people in the crypto circles have、um, about like how much more, <laughs> like how shitty fiat currency actually is. Like、uh, everybody wants to bash fiat currency, but I think you know really if you're being objective, okay, most of the fiat currencies in the world are way more robust to crypto tokens and to a large extent. This is because the things that we just talked about at the beginning of this episode, okay? Because we have, because the 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 fiat tokens they are used as medium of change and unit account in their respective real economies. There is a real demand in commerce and trade right there that is supporting the value, the supporting the price of fiat tokens. And that is something you cannot just dismiss to say, "Oh, this is all a Ponzi," or "This is, you know, of no no significance at all," which is just plain untrue. Okay, and that's just a use case,、um, a very obvious, a very strong, powerful use case that, you know, most of the crypto tokens. I would say none of the crypto tokens would actually, you know, can can proclaim to have at least.、Uh, Proclaim to have to a sufficient extent to this day because we are still so early, right? So I think instead of instead of saying okay, USD US dollar is going to go to hell or all fiat tokens are dead, which is just not true. Okay, if you believe that's true, please send me all your fiat tokens. I would be very happy to keep them. Okay, if you just so dislike your fiat tokens so much. <laughs> So,、um, so, so, so the thing is, you know, rather than saying,、um, okay, the fiat, the fiat currencies don't matter, the the crypto tokens really need to learn. <laughs>
really need to learn from the fiat tokens and, and, and figure out, like study why fiat actually work. Okay. Even though they're not backed by any, even though, even though the, you know, uh, most of fiat currencies in the world, they're not backed by gold and silver anymore. Why are they not collapsing? Why are they not going to zero? You cannot just say, oh, they are going to going to zero. No, they're not. Okay. There is a reason that they, they are still standing and there is a very strong reason. It's just a, it, it's just not helpful. And it's, and, and it's, it's not helping crypto to figure out the path forward if, if we refuse to accept that. Okay. You have to learn from your enemies, <laughs> right? Um, um, let alone the fact that the fiats are not really enemies of crypto. So, um, that's that. Did I answer this question? Maybe not. I'm sure I, I didn't answer it to this particular person's satisfaction. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Next one, NT Chris. Um, what is the, what is your view on algo stable coins? Is it that they cannot exist or they can, but need to solve many things? So here's the thing. Bottom line, I think algo stablecoin, they, they can and they would work. But it may take quite a bit of trial and error as you see with the tour, with the Luna experiment. And why do I, so, so I'm, I'm actually, you know, bottom line, I'm long term quite optimistic about stablecoin that has a good economic design. So why do I say so? Why am I optimistic? Because if you look at, again, I look at what's happening in real economy, okay? Most of fiat currencies in the world, they're not backed by so-called hard assets like gold and silver, okay? So you, so, so most of the fiat currencies, so about 30 to 40% of fiat currencies in the world, they are able to maintain a you know, the so-called fixed exchange rate, whether it's a, like a hard pack, you know, your, 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 your token, like in a country like UAE, for example, um, they have a hard, like pretty strong peg to the US dollar. So that exchange rate has a very, um, very, very small band to allow to, to, for the value to fluctuate, right? Uh, most of the fixed exchange rate fiat currencies, they have like a, I would say it's a, like a softer peg. So they, they're, they're allowed to deviate in value from the, the exchange rate, either vis-a-vis, usually it's vis-a-vis US dollar or vis-a-vis Euro or, you know, relatively to, relative to a basket of currencies. But so, so they're, they're allowed to fluctuate, but you, you know, within a band, like within or 1% or 2% value band, right? That for that price to, to fluctuate. But you see, 30 to 40% of fiat currencies can more or less maintain a fixed exchange rate. This is no small deal, okay? Um, what does this tell you? It tells you a algo stable coin can potentially work because what, what are these uh, fixed exchange rate fiat tokens? They are essentially the algo stable coins in real life because when you have a fixed exchange rate, it's not like your currency is one-to-one, one-to-one backed, 
by the currency you pegged to. Okay, so whether it's like a Singapore dollar or it's like a, a Panama Balboa or anything that claim to have a fixed exchange rate, it's not like it's it's not like the country has like a 100% foreign exchange reserves, meaning like US dollar reserves to, to, to back, to quote unquote back their currency to maintain that fixed exchange rate, right? So usually the reserve to, you know, to, to, to the broad money ratio is it ranges from like 20% to like, um, I've seen like a 50, 60%, but on average about 30, 35%, okay? So you can say this is a under collateralized stable coin, these, these fiat tokens with fixed exchange rate, right? But what's the difference between these and the stable coins, the algo stable coins we've seen so far in crypto? Again, I'm, I, I hate to be such a broken record, but it is true. The key difference is that token in itself, it needs to have an uncorrelated demand that is uncorrelated with the, with the necessity to have a pegged exchange rate, right? So if a fiat token ha runs a fixed exchange rate that is pegged to US dollar, that's great because it, you know, provides a stability and predictability to international commerce and trade between this country and the rest of the world. Okay. Right. So, so it has its advantages. But if tomorrow some disaster strikes and the country runs out of foreign exchange reserves or it cannot afford to maintain the peg, it's not the end of the world. Okay, the economy still runs, the currency still has value because it's used in a real economy that is not going to zero <laughs> overnight, right? So, so, so that is the, I think the fundamental important thing for the stable coins, for crypto stable coins to be stable <laughs> is to figure out, okay, even if you are under collateralized, even if you're not like a USDT or USDC that claim to be backed by like a one-to-one -one by US dollar cash, you need, you really need a underlying uncorrelated demand for your collateral token um, to be able to shore up the value. Um, so, 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 but you know, I, I think in the, in the short term, that is, that is a tough, tough problem to solve because where do you find a token that has that kind of uncorrelated demand? Bitcoin, Ethereum, even those you cannot claim it's, you know, you, 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 you still, you know, the demand for those are hard, are like a highly correlated with online speculative activities and financial like a, a cycles of financial speculations, right? So, um, but we are still very early. What can I say? But, you know, I, I think these things will just, will, will happen over time. It won't happen overnight. So next question, Quash K reminder, uh, Luna was also used to secure the network and the dApps on the ecosystem were ultra innovative and so close to start having real life use cases. Wasn't it just a matter of bad deployment? 
that is growing too fast, liquidity crunch, etc. I think this person, I think you are, uh, this, th this person is like, is making light of the situation, <laughs> in my view. I, I think Luna ecosystem was, is, was still pretty far away from having any substantial network effect or quote unquote real life use cases, as we already discuss discussed. And the rate that the system, that the UST system was expanding was just way too fast um, for, for, for the system to be sustainable. And uh, keep in mind when you're growing so fast, when you're, when you're you know, um, market cap is growing so fast, while you don't have, really have a robust way to actually um, support that peg, uh, when things go downhill, it's like very hard to find people to rescue, right? Very, very hard to find a lender of last resort when you have such a huge hole to fill, essentially. So that, that backs, you know, I think this goes back to my point that smaller is beautiful. When you have a smaller, you know, market cap, it's easier to find external lender of last resort in case you need it one day, all right? So, but if you are this big, um, who, who will have that liquidity? <laughs> that sufficient amount of liquidity and a sufficient amount of confidence um, in the system to actually rescue you. It's just, it's a more difficult situation, right? So um, that's that. Next next question from Dua S. Um, what are your thoughts on STETH? Uh, liquid staked ETH and the systemic risk, both to STETH holders and the ETH ecosystem. So STETH is this um, liquid staking uh, ETH two token that is issued by Lido, right? Which is like the largest liquid staking service provider on Ethereum, and they're also they they were also on Luna, um, and they're also on Solana, I believe. So the thing is, I, I think the, so, so there, there are two things here. Number one, STETH is not a algo stable coin. Yes, it, the, the value is supposed to be packed to Ethereum, right? But it's not under collateralized because you do have to exchange ETH for STETH token. So it's exactly like a, deposit certificate, right? So you stake ETH, you, you give your ETH to Lido for staking, and they give you this deposit called S, a deposit certificate, just like your bank will give you in the old days to prove that you you have this, uh, you know, deposit with them. So this this what this STETH token does is to, it's, it's like essentially a deposit certificate. And it, you can say it's backed. It's backed by your deposit because <laughs> you just, uh, you know, you just deposited the one ETH to exchange for one STETH token back, right? So there is no like, a, there shouldn't be any under collateralization issue going on, not like um, the dynamic pegging mechanism used by Luna. Okay, so I would say that. So 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 first of all, this peg is way should be way more stable compared to. Um, UST 
uh, USD's peg to uh, to US dollar, right? Because this is pegged to to Ethereum price. But 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 here's the second thing though, Lido is huge. So um, I think right now they are over ninety percent of the market share of of liquid uh, ETH staking, which is kind of scary. <laughs> you. <laughs> You 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 look around and how many how many industries you can find the largest uh, the largest company or largest player has like a 92 93% of the market cap right it you you even in like a monopolistic industries i think this is something that 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 will be considered pretty extraordinary so when you have so much uh, concentration of uh, of market share in one industry and you also keep in mind uh, STE is now used as collateral in some pretty big DeFi protocols such as Aave, right? So I would say if this STE goes down, <laughs> it would have a lot more systemic impact compared to a token like UST because UST is really pretty limited um, the usage was still pretty limited, mostly in Anchor and mostly in, in Cosmos ecosystem, right? So uh, I'm not saying UST, I'm not saying STETH will go down. Again, I, I think the peg should be way more stable, right? Because it's not under collateralized. But the thing is, there's also, there's also, there's always stable, like things like smart contract risk, right? There's always a risk that they could be hacked. <laughs> Um, or you know, so so those those are those risks. They always exist, and they become like uh, magnified by the fact by the fact that this protocol it has such a big market share in in the liquid staking market. So um, I'm not predicting that any bad things will happen. I'm just saying this risk is actually not small. <laughs> Okay, so um, next one, crypto NFTs. What what do you, what do you think when once CBDCs rolled out, will any of the stable coins be able to compete? Um. So um, okay. So here's the thing, though. Um, there 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 are so many ways that you you can do CBDCs, right? Um, the, the, the problem is most of the central bank, central banks are not technology, are not technologists. They're not in the business of running technology or running blockchains or decentralized ledgers or even databases, right? Um, so for a, for a central bank to issue a retail CBC is actually a pretty big and pretty heavy lifting endeavor. If the US, if the United States is to have, decides to have a US dollar CBDC, retail CBDC today, it, it, I don't think we, we will see the final product rolling out until in three to five years. <laughs> and even that, I feel like that's optimistic. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and not to mention, not to mention the cost, 
um, you know, that is involved in the process, which is substantial, not maybe not for a large country like United States or for, 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 you know, you know, European Union or for China, but certainly for a smaller country that, that, that may be thinking about having their own CBDC. So I, I actually think a more feasible route for most of the like a small to medium sized nation states, if they want to have a retail CBDC, I think the most, the more feasible route is to have a national chain, national blockchain that built on either one of the existing protocols, you know, you can have an ETH2 rollout or you can have a Avalanche subnet. There are other options as well that you, but you make it interoperable with the rest of the, you know, public blockchain ecosystems. And you can issue a CBDC on your own chain and you can invite, you know, applications to build on your national blockchain. And uh, you can also, you can also, instead of issuing your own retail CBDC, you ask, you invite your banking sector, you invite your fintech sector to actually issue stable coins and, you know, uh, to retail users and you as the government, as the central bank, make sure you have good regulations in place, make sure these stable coins is, are, are actually stable. Just, just like you would regulate banks and insurance companies. So I think that's actually the most, uh, you know, the last way is probably the easiest way, like the, and the fastest, you know, um, the fastest speed to market for, for, for any like a retail CBDC to actually happen. So, um, I think different countries are thinking of different approaches, but to me, the smartest move may be just to let private sector do it for you and you regulate them just like you regulate banks. Make sure there are good regulations in, in place and you protect your consumer interests, that's all. Instead of trying to roll your own technology. So um, this, is, this is still, you know, uh, this is uh, a area that is very much in flux right now and uh, different countries are thinking of different approaches, but I, I think at least to some, they, they will go the private sector approach, um, because, if they're smart. <laughs> so that's my view. Um, next question. All right. Almost there. Uh, Victor F. What is the network effect of the assets that back fiats? What assets back fiats? Well, um, we already talked about this, you know, again, I'm sounding like a broken record. Network effect from real economies. You have real, you have real demand for the fiat currency coming from real world commerce and transactions and trade activities. That, that is the, that is the backing for fiat. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, 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 so that is, that is the most part. That is the biggest part. And also you, 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 you also have, um, uh, so because this person, he also mentioned a government IOUs, demographics, population growth. 
Yeah, so 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 that's that's one part, the network effect from real commerce and uh, real economies. But you also think about, you know, what is backing fiat? It it's uh it's it's also backed if you like uh for example in the United States uh uh, you know, when, when the government issues U.S. treasuries, which is like a quasi money, right? it's not part of the money supply, but it's very, it's a very liquid asset. Um, so, so what, what is that backed by? Well, it's backed by the government revenue. Where, where does the government revenue come from? It comes from the real economy because, you know, you have certain X percentage of taxes. That is, you know, mandated by law that will be collected every year, um, you know, from the economy. So the public sector is taking a share of the economic pie created every year by the economic ecosystem, and that is, you know, you can probably you 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 can argue that is one of the maybe the most stable revenues you can ever hope for hope for from any public or private companies. <laughs> Is the tax revenue that is like the most stable revenues, most stable income that you can have. So um, that 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 allows U.S. Treasuries or any kind of government uh, securities to be one of the most low risk, or or at least being perceived as the you know one of the lowest risk tiers of any financial assets, because the revenues backing these are pretty much a sure thing in most cases, right? Uh, okay, so last question from Takai. Uh, not sure what network effect for the reserve asset means. In USD's case, might be Luna and BTC. For FRAX, is the curve convex AMO pulls? Okay, so we talked about the you know, network effect for stablecoin, it needs to come from not the stablecoin itself, but it needs to come from the asset that's backing the stablecoin, right? So in, in Luna's case, it's Luna. So in Frax's case, it's the Frax share token, at least so far. So um, the Frax share token is involved in um, so-called AMOs. Basically, it's being pledged in different, you know, like a DeFi protocols, for example, in different, uh, um, you know, liquidity pools, uh, staking pools, and in, 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 you know, DeFi ecosystems. Um, obviously, it's, it's like, you know, better than nothing, right? Better than no use case for the Frax share at all. But are these uncorrelated demand? I don't think so. These are, you know, definitely really correlated with, with, uh, you know, on-chain speculative activities of, of the DeFi sector. So, I mean, it's a start. Uh, but do, do, do I think the, these are very strong network effect that's uncorrelated, uh, with the, uh, demand for the stablecoin itself? I don't think so. I think it's still a pretty long way there. So that it's so 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 it's it's a good thing that Frax model is pretty conservative. That you know the um, the uh, USDC reserve is eighty uh, percent to ninety percent, I believe, of the of the um, 
of the Frax um, market cap. Okay, so they are. This is actually the Frax model is very similar to the fixed exchange rate of a fiat currency, <laughs> because you have like a foreign reserves that in in this case it's like USDC in Frax case. Okay, uh, that you can use to you know, defend the value of your peg, um, but it's not like a 100% backed, right? So there is something else there. There's a reserve, you know, a variable priced reserve asset involved, which in this case is Frax share. Um, you know, it's it's basically a signage share token that's, you know, collecting the uh, value added uh, that is being generated from from the from this stablecoin service, right? Um, but the difference from most uh, from the most fiat currency again is is the is the demand. Um, you know, any kind of uh, uh, real world usage. Well, I wouldn't even call it real world. Just just any kind of uh, usage that's uncorrelated with the demand for the stablecoin itself. Okay. So um, all right. Um, I think that's all for today. I will talk to you next time.